0: Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1307 of the Lots on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you on a Thursday. It's September the 8th and a training camp is on the horizon. In fact, the Atlanta Hawks will be opening the preseason schedule four weeks from today in Abu Dhabi. So we're getting very close to the season itself. And if you've been following along with the podcast, you'll know that already. But if you're a new listener or just jumping back in as the season's getting closer, thank you for joining us on the podcast and making us your first listen each and every day. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, as well as Stitcher, all kinds of podcast platforms. Thank you for joining us for sure. Uh, In fact, by the way, I should plug this as well. Earlier this week, I had a two-part episode with Ben Ladner, one of the favorite guests of the podcast. Ben is awesome. We talked about the Eastern Conference layout with the Donovan Mitchell, trade, and Kevin Durant, as well as the Hawks projections, their defense, uh, Murray and Trey Young, how they fit together, uh, the wing situation, John Collins, etc. All of that is on those uh, feeds right now, wherever you listen to podcasts, and Ben is very smart. One point of clarity, I did post this on the YouTube feed, well, we talked about the uh, sort of uh, the leaders and all time appearances on the podcast, kind of a funny, uh, I guess, backward facing exercise. But Ben is near the top. The number one person is actually Jeff Siegel, who is uh, now retired from the basketball media space. But Howard Jones is very close to catching Jeff. That's a, a wild one to follow, as well as Robbie Calland Ben Ladner, Glenn Willis. Zach Hood, and my friend Brian Schroeder on the NBA draft side. So hopefully if for the diehards, you will appreciate that accounting of previous, uh, <laughs> previous guests and everyone's appearances on the show. But now we'll dive into what's going to be an all mailbag show. Essentially, um, not a ton of news around the NBA even right now. There was a contract extension that actually happened on Thursday, but it was not the Hawks. It's Maxi Kleber in Dallas, and uh, pretty quiet as the Mitchell trade. Other than that, and the Hawks, really no news. And uh, you know, obviously, some workout videos starting to leak out. I know Akong will talk to uh, the AJC. This week, reading a little bit closer to uh, things happening, but a lot of mailbag questions. I have a stockpile, and I'm always mean those. By the way, uh, even if I don't necessarily get to all of them. I try to answer as many as possible. So please fire mailbag questions to me at LockedOnHawks on on Twitter or at BT Roland on Twitter. And we also have an email address. It's LockedOnHawks at gmail.com. If you have a mailbag question, I definitely want to hear it. And I will share a lot of those on the podcast. The first one today comes from Dijon Trey on Twitter. I thank you for the question. What seed? Would you project the Atlanta Hawks to finish with in the Western Conference if they were in the West? It's a pretty good question on the heels of all the Eastern Conference stuff I've been talking about recently with Bill Filippo and Ben Ladner, etc., It is kind of odd, honestly, for someone who's been covering the league as long as I have, to talk about how good and deep the East is, but that's just where we are at this point. It's kind of strange. The East used to be uh, the running punchline, especially near the middle and the bottom of the East. Obviously, the the very bottom is still kind of ugly at times, but um, there are some teams in the West that are obviously quite good as well, but the West actually has less depth than the East, which is pretty crazy, broadly speaking, in my mind. I did reply to the original tweet uh, question here, but um, kind of without doing any thinking at all, and I sit kind of in the 6-7 range probably for the Hawks in the Western Conference. I think that now, at the same time, I'm going to use bet on lines, win totals to kind of influence the discussion a little bit here, acknowledging that they might vary a little bit, obviously given the schedules. So if you're in the if you're in the East, you play the East teams more. If you're in the West, you play the West teams more. That used to mean a lot, actually, like maybe a win or two. Now it's probably a little bit less than that because the conferences are a lot more balanced than it used to be. But right now in the West, as I record this, the Clippers, Suns and Warriors all have over-unders in the 52, 52 52-and-a-half range. So those teams are all solidly ahead of where the Hawks are. Denver at 50-and-a-half wins with Michael Porter Jr. and Jamal Murray back this year to go along with the reigning MVP and Jokic. Um, The Grizzlies at 49-and-a-half wins after their uh, number two seed finish last year. Um, Dallas, 48-and-a-half wins. Minnesota, 48-and-a-half wins. And the Lakers are 45-and-a-half wins at this point in the Western Conference. I do think the Hawks are better than the Lakers pretty clearly on paper. Even though obviously the Lakers have LeBron and AD, um, you can't replicate those guys. But their number four through ten players is pretty ugly. Like it's kind of startling still to me how bad they were last year from three to ten, basically. And this year, I do trust Pat Beverly as a pretty solid role-playing, maybe even starter kind of guard. But uh, not a whole lot going on there with the Lakers roster beyond the top two, at least in the at least right now as I record this podcast. They still have Russ, but Russ has kind of been a uh, an issue there in terms of their spacing, etc. So. I'm going to have the Lakers behind the Hawks for sure. Um, So if you pull them off of the list here and just go by the win total projection about online, our partners, the Hawks will be number eight in the West, which is basically the same spot that they are on the Eastern Conference. They're actually kind of like tied-ish with the eight, nine spots. Um, But generally speaking, they're somewhere between six and eight in the East, depending on where you look, and they're kind of in that same ballpark in the West by the win totals. I do think the Hawks have a pretty decent argument against both the Mavericks and the Wolves on paper right now. The Mavs might sound funny because they made the Connors finals last year, but they basically, in my mind, got worse. Um, Jalen Brunson, um, you know, went to the Knicks for a lot of money. It's the deal that probably looks better in future facing because the cap's going to go up, etc. They did get Christian Wood, Dallas did, and Jamil McGee, but they don't have a roster that, like, is terrifying. Obviously, Luka is very, very good. Um, but that's a team that would not surprise me if the Hawks were better than this year in the regular season. Um, not a total disaster there, obviously. Um, and then you get into. Minnesota, and they have a lot of talent. They did a similar move to a couple of other teams around the league and kind of went all in for Rudy Gobert. Actually, they paid the highest price of anybody for Rudy Gobert. And that top three in terms of just talent of Edwards, Towns, and Gobert is pretty darn impressive. But they traded a lot of their depth for Rudy. And we don't know how it's going to fit together. Obviously, Towns being kind of a full-time power forward is different for sure. So it would not surprise me if the Hawks were ahead of them too. I think you can rationally argue anywhere between six and eight for the Hawks in my mind. I think there are five teams in the West that I think you have to think are going to be better than the Hawks this year on paper. Obviously, that doesn't mean the Hawks couldn't be better than those teams uh, long term in terms of just actually projecting it for right now. I think the Clippers, if they're healthy, of course, uh, the Suns, the Warriors, the Nuggets and the Grizzlies kind of have to be ahead of the Hawks. That's five teams. Then you get into the Hawks, uh, along with Dallas, Minnesota, and maybe the Lakers, if you want to kind of dig in there from, uh, that's, from that standpoint. Um, speaking bet online, by the way, this is a couple of questions that kind of rounded into one. Our friends there at online, came out with playoff odds for every team that actually you can bet on right now. And the Hawks are minus 240 to make the playoffs and plus 190 to miss the playoffs. By the way, the playoffs for this exercise are actually making the playoffs as the final 8 team field. So the play-in does not count. You have to get out of the play-in and into the playoffs to actually have this bet win if you were to bet the yes- on the Hawks. Like last year, the Hawks got out of the play. And if they had lost in the play-in, they would not have made the playoffs, quote unquote, which I think is the right way to do this. Um, for all the non-betters among us, the implied odds of minus 240 is about a 70 or 71% chance for the Hawks to make the playoffs. When I think about it that way, instead, I guess, you know, the Hawks seven out of 10 chances to make the playoffs by these odds. That's probably about right for me. It might even be a little bit low without, without like diving too deep into it. I'll do a little bit here. But um, for me, there's a pretty clear top nine in the East, and only eight of them make the playoffs. Uh, there is a chance, probably, that a team like the Wizards or the Knicks could have something uh, go their way. The Knicks could make a trade. The Wizards could just kind of find lightning in a bottle. Or whatever. That's plausible, but I think they are number ten and number eleven. Uh, I think they're probably at least a half tier behind the rest of the top nine in the East. And for me, the big thing about this bet for the Hawks and a lot of these teams is how you feel about the Bulls. Um, I said a little, this a few times on the podcast over the summer. I'm a bit lower on the Bulls than some. Um, I think that's part of the reason why I like the value on the Hawks here. I said recently on the show, ESPN had the Bulls ahead of the Hawks. Um, I don't believe that to be true. I'm actually pretty confident in that one. Um, if you want to say the other teams are ahead of the Hawks, like the Raptors or the Cavs, I won't go crazy about those. The Bulls are the one where I'm like pretty definitively solid on the Hawks being better than them. Um, I, I, and I kind of have Chicago in their own mini tier at number nine. I think the Hawks and Raptors and the Cavs are better than them. I think the Nets are better than them, obviously. And then the last year's top four, Boston, Milwaukee, Miami, Philadelphia, in some order, are all better than the Bulls. So I don't people I don't people don't necessarily love to bet big favorites and minus 240 favorites are pretty uh, lofty. So I do get that. But when I shared the bet online odds, people asked me kind of what I thought about those. And I think, if anything, the, the value is on the Hawks making it versus missing it. I think if you had to guess it right now with current in- injury information, et cetera, I think the Hawks make the top eight more than 70% of the time. Um, does not mean they a locked to do that for sure. Obviously the plan adds a little bit more um, chaos because even if the Hawks are the better team, if they were to lose a playing game and at the wrong time, that would be bad. So anyway, Uh, There's a little bit of liquidity there, but I I do think that the Hawks are uh, a pretty solid value at that number if I had to ask and uh, sort of be answering that question right now. Okay, before we get to some more mailbag questions on the podcast today, a word from our sponsors on the show. Today's show is brought to you by Built Bar. If you haven't tried the Built Bar Puffs yet, you're depriving yourself of one of life's greatest joys. And guess what? There's a new flavor as well. It's delicious. That's right. Built has a new flavor that really they've done in the game. They always do, but really they're back with one that I absolutely love and that new favorite cookie dough chunk puffs they have a light and chewy texture real cookie dough chunks and of course they're covered in 100 real chocolate as all built bars are they have all the joys of eating cookie dough without all the hassle of having to actually make it plus it's healthy for you cookie dough chunk puffs have 160 calories and a whopping 15 grams of protein as well what's also great about built is they have all their bars have collagen protein in them which your body absorbs more efficiently that provides a ton of health benefits Eat something that tastes good and is also good for you go to built.com right now to snag a box for yourself or your family It'll be a perfect treat for you and whoever wants to eat those. In fact, you're absolutely going to love the new cookie dough chunk puff when you need a snack or your workout, a late night treat, or just to grab a quick bite. Built is a perfect protein bar and it tastes better than the candy bar as well. Ditch the calories, ditch the fat, and ditch the sugar. Grab yourself a built bar right now today. Go to built.com and use our new promo code. That promo code is locked on 15, 15% off on your order. One more time, that is promo code locked on15, 15% off at built.com. Okay. The next question that we'll answer on the podcast comes from Sam who says Trey Young is obviously the best player, but settle an argument I've been having about whether DeJounte Murray is the second best player to suit up for the Hawks in the last 20 years. So before we get into the actual question, Trey is the obvious right choice for the last 20 years. That, by the way, the 20-year cutoff is actually important here for a few different things. Um, not necessarily for the, for the number, one, number one spot, because I think pretty clearly at this point, Trey is the best player for the Hawks since Dominique Wilkins. Um, but the 20-year cutoff does remove guys contending for the number two spot. Uh, like Matumbo, like, for instance, is not um, not eligible for this list. Steve Smith, not eligible for this list. They wouldn't be near Trey, but they'd be in the mix for number two. Anyway, so that's, that's the number two qualify here. Um, 20 years is uh, kind of a round number that puts you in you know, the 2002 season, obviously. Um, I think broadly speaking, for the record, um, there are five candidates for the best hawk of this period uh, that is not Trey Young, of course. This is the number, number two spot behind Trey. And uh, I will say this, this is not cumulative impact the way that I'm going to answer this question, because the question is framed around Murray before he even plays for the Hawks. So like if the argument is if he's in the second best player, it can't be cumulative because he's not played for them at all. And I think that, you know, it'd be hard to go ahead and do that moving forward. So I'm going to say the best version of all these players is the guy we're actually arguing about. So, uh, you know, longevity doesn't really matter at this, at this point here. It's kind of it's out of the window. And I think the five players in some order that would be contenders for the number two spot behind Trey in the last 20 years are DeJounte Murray, Joe Johnson, Al Horford, Paul Millsap, and Sharif Adurahim would be, would be my guess. Maybe you could throw in Josh Smith. He's kind of the one on the line for me, uh, but he's not going to be ahead of uh, Murray. Just spoiler alert on that one. Uh, before I come back to that, there is a longer list that I would have had if you want to go like top 10. Um, you know, Jason Terry would be on there probably. The 2020-21 version of Clint Capella is probably on there. His best season, I thought he was a top 35, 40 player that season. Maybe John Collins would be on the list. Obviously, Josh Smith, who I mentioned a second ago. uh, Prime, all-star level Jeff Teague that season might have been uh, on this list as well. Uh, You can go a little bit deeper to like Antoine Walker and Al Harrington. They were pretty inefficient, so I wouldn't have gone there. They did score a lot of points. Maybe Kyle Korver at his absolute peak. But I think that Josh Smith and Capella, in some order, are 6-7 and on this list. Um, maybe you could argue that Josh is ahead of Sharif. I, I wouldn't. Uh, I, would, I wouldn't be bothered by that at all. But it's kind of just what you're looking for at that point. I do think Josh Smith, especially now, is probably underrated in how good he was. And I kind of wish he played now in the more modern era where he could play more center and all that stuff. That's a different podcast for a different time. But alas, uh, it is worth noting, by the way. Um, I I don't think that Murray is the second best player to suit for the Hawks in the last 20 years. But I do think there's a chance I'm wrong because he's not played for them yet, number one. And if he could prove that last season is like his new baseline um, or is even better than that, that's obviously in play in a way we don't know um, all about Murray at this point in time, whereas we got to already see what happened with these other guys. So the upside there is a little bit higher, clearly. I would have Al Horford and Joe Johnson as the real contenders, the top two contenders. I would put Murray kind of in a tier with Paul Millsap at this moment. And then both guys, uh, both of those guys just a touch ahead of Sharif and Josh Smith and Baby Capella for that 2021 season, if you want to throw him in there as well. Notably, Sharif Abdul best season was actually the year before the 20-year cutoff. That's actually important here because... He was still on the Hawks 20 years ago, which is why he's eligible here. But his best season was not eligible for here, which which does matter. I know that there are not a lot of Hawks fans probably that remember those years vividly. I do. I'm a, I'm a sicko like that. Um, if you're younger, you wouldn't have... Maybe I any recollection of that at all. And Abdur Rahim uh, you know, got traded, uh, obviously, was the kind of controversial trade when Paul Gasol, the pick that got Paul Gasol, was sent out for him. Uh, really good player, not necessarily an all-timer by any means, but um, definitely a top 25, 30 player in the league at different points of his tenure with the Hawks. But again, his best season was the year before the cutoff. Uh, Millsap was awesome. Obviously, in Atlanta, I have a huge affinity for Paul. I covered him up close in a way that I did not cover I'm sure if you are him obviously even even Josh Smith was a little bit different. I was a little bit more of a young reporter at that point in time. Uh, when I really started like being really on the on the beat, so to speak, every single day was when Paul was on the roster, was when Albert was on the roster, et cetera. But it is worth noting that Paul was never an all-NBA selection. I don't think he was ever a top-20 player in the league. Uh, you could argue maybe that um, at his absolute peak he was maybe on the fringes of that, but offensively a little bit a little bit limited at times. Um, definitely defensively was awesome at times. I think he should have got more love, all-defense uh, inclusions, et cetera. Paul was awesome. I would still have uh, him behind uh, Joe and Al in some order. And by the way, I don't think Murray's been a top-20 player either, and that's why I have him at that same level as Millsap. I think that he was probably like a top 30 guy in the league last year with the Spurs. I am very intrigued to see how he plays this year on a team with real aspirations where he's not the number one option and kind of doing everything. But he is really talented. And I think we'll have that obviously covered out a lot in the, in the future. Um, I'm not sure that Joe Johnson's absolute best season was his All-NBA campaign, but he did make All-NBA once with the Hawks in 2009-2010. Um, And basically that kind of locks you into that top 20 ish range in the league that year. Um, That's probably important when you account for positional stuff, et cetera. It helps that he was a seven time all-star, but obviously this is the ceiling argument. I do think that his best, um, with the Hawks was, was better than Murray has been to this point. Obviously again, Murray could surpass that, but I would say Joe's best was uh, pretty solidly ahead of where Murray has reached to this point. I feel the same way about Al Horford. Um, Although obviously he and Joe are very different players and kind of contributed very different ways, but Horford was an all NBA guy in 2010, 11. That's notable as well. Again, like a top 20 player in the league. I think he had a multiple seasons where he was a top 20 ish player in the NBA. Never had the counting stats that Murray had last year, obviously with the Spurs. But even if you assume that Murray is just as good as he was last year, I think that guy still slots behind Joe Johnson and Al Horford in some order for number two behind Trey over the last 20 years. It's a good question. It's kind of a fun argument. Hopefully I did not ruin your argument with your friend if you're asking this question. But I think that is a pretty kind of uh, interesting tier stuff. You can certainly argue that maybe Josh Smith is too low, um, et cetera. But I think the uh, the short answer on that is that Murray is not the second best player, at least right now. Obviously he could surpass that in the near future. Okay, next question comes from AJ, who says, I need to know more about the Bleacher Report redraft that you commented on on Twitter. It seemed crazy low for Hunter. And why is your guy, Tyler Hero, so high? Um, Interesting, by the way, framing of my guy, Tyler Hero. Um, For reference, Andy Bailey Bleacher Report did a 2019 redraft that was kind of making the rounds in the last few days. I sent one tweet about it, which is basically saying that Hunter was too low on the list. And I do believe that's the case. And I did. I said, as someone who's actually pointed out, that Hunter's kind of fallen below what you would have thought maybe he's done so far. Even that, I think he is too low on this list. I would recommend reading the actual article and the entire thing. Andy Bailey is a smart guy. He does a lot of good stuff with metrics and stuff, but I do disagree with him on a few things about the redraft that are like kind of Hawks-related, so I want, I'm not going to do the entire thing because that would, that would be a whole podcast. But for one, I know Hawks fans always want to hear about Cam Reddish. He's number 30 on this list. That's too low for Cam Reddish. Uh, he's not been very good in his NBA career. He's kind of in the wilderness right now behind uh, you know in, in New York, maybe not even playing still. Uh, he obviously should not have gone – as high um, in the original draft as he would now, obviously. Um, but I do think that he is too low in the list because of the talent that he's kind of flashed and the flashes that he does have. Um, I do hope that he buys into a more realistic role for himself as kind of a role player and kind of figures that out long-term. But he's like behind like the kill Alexander-Walker. I would rather have Radish pretty clearly for long-term stuff. I was also kind of stunned. It's not like Hawks related, but I was actually stunned that Lou Dort was number 26. That's way too low for him in my mind. But back to the Hawks. Hunter was number 13, which is the ranking that I kind of referenced as being too low on Twitter. Bailey noted that the advanced metrics are pretty bad for Hunter overall, which by the way, he's correct about. They are really ugly. Um, also kind of flagged his rebound rate being very low. Also true. Steal rate being low. Also true. But this is a redraft, not what you've done previously. And I do think that Hunter's flashes and his potential as a 6'8 two-way forward have him a little bit too low on this list. I think you could probably argue um, on behalf of you know, nine or 10 guys ahead of him, potentially. I'm not saying you have to have those guys ahead of, of Hunter, but I think there are at least a couple guys where I kind of vehemently disagree with Hunter being behind them. The two that I thought were like pretty wild were Rui Hachimura. Um, that one's not really close to me. I think Hunter's already probably been better than Hachimura and has a lot more future facing talent than Hachimura on both ends of the floor. Um, and then Matisse title is the other one that I don't, I don't see as being accurate at all. Teibel is a better defender obviously right now, but he's, Close to a zero on offense, like truly almost unplayable offensively. I think he's also a little bit a little bit overrated defensively, just because of how much he pops playmaking a I think his like actual like on ball stuff is not as good as you might think. Uh, we saw we see that a few different times in his career so far. It's not a Matisse Hubble podcast, but alas, that's where we are. I think Hunter should be at least ahead of those two guys at minimum, probably even a spot or two ahead of that. So I probably have him somewhere in the 10-ish range, 9-10, 8-9-10 range. Obviously, you want more than that for the guy you traded a boatload for and drafted number four overall. I get all that, but I think that, um, for one, he's too low on this list, and uh, we'll see where he sort of pops at the end of the season. Also, just to uh, wrap it up, the original question, yes, Tyler Hero is too high on this list in my mind. I know I am the resident skeptic on Tyler Hero. Even I will acknowledge that he's a pretty valuable offensive player. So I'm not saying Tyler Hero is bad. I've never said that. I think that he is a little bit overrated at this point in time, but I'd rather have RJ Barrett, for instance. I'm not even super high on Barrett. I just kind of value the two-way stuff there a little bit higher. So I probably have Hero a couple spots lower and uh, just kind of run that out on the question. Okay, before we get to the rest of the mailbag questions on today's show, a word from our sponsors on the podcast. All right, this is kind of a roundup question because I got a couple of these uh, about a sentence from Mike Scotto of Hoops Hype in August that I have not talked about yet on the podcast. Basically, it was in response to a report that the Hawks made an offer to Brooklyn for Kevin Durant. Obviously, we'll cover that in depth when it happened and how Atlanta's reported offer of Collins and DeAndre Hunter and a pick was not going to be even close to enough for the Nets to actually do it. But Scotto wrote in the last few days that multiple members of Brooklyn's front office have been admirers of Atlanta's John Collins from afar for years. League sources told Hoops Hype However, Collins was not enough to be the headline player in a trade package with the Hawks for Durant. The second part is pretty obvious. Even though I like John Collins a lot, he's not going to be the headliner in a Kevin Durant trade. But I heard this also actually along the way that Marks does seem to like John Collins. Somebody in that Brooklyn front office, I I assume it's Sean Marks. Um, And one of the questions I got basically was was whether whether the Nets would still want to trade for Collins now, even without Durant involved. I'm not reporting that. By the way, I can speculate that Brooklyn almost certainly would like to add Collins because they're clearly trying to win now. He'd be, he'd be very helpful in doing that. But with that said, there really is not a trade partner that I can see in terms of a swap uh, with a two-team deal anyway with the Nets. And it involved Ben Simmons, and I don't think that's something that I expect to happen in the near future. The Hawks have shown interest in Simmons in the past. It's been a while, though, since they have talked about Simmons. I think the entire league is kind of in wait-and-see mode with Ben Simmons after he's not played for a very long time. Plus, he's making a lot of money. Uh, it's like 110, $115 million the next three seasons. Uh, that might be a bad contract. We'll see if Simmons is the guy he used to be, it's a totally fine contract, but if he's not the guy he used to be, that's not one that you probably love necessarily. But if you try to find a deal for Collins without including Durant or Ben Simmons, it gets kind of challenging in part because of Brooklyn's salary structure. Like the easiest way to do it would have Joe Harris in the deal. Cause he's making like 19 ish million the next two years, but then that's actually like Joe Harris a lot. And he kind of helps them in a lot of ways, he's kind of their one three and D ish shooting perimeter guy. So that's kind of what they want there. I would imagine. Obviously, they have Royce o'neill now as well, but he's not quite the shooter that Joe Harris is by any stretch. Maybe maybe want to trade Harris, but like I said, a number of times. The Hawks are not going to trade John Collins right now unless they get a starting caliber power forward back. And that's not a guy that the Nets really have on their roster outside of Durant and Simmons. Um, they have some guys like Harris and Royce O'Neal that are pretty interesting guys on the wing. They have some quality guards, Seth Curry, Patty Mills, etc. They, they don't fix the power forward stuff there. I know there's a school of thought that the Hawks could maybe use Hunter at the four more, but he's not proven capable of doing that on the glass, especially right now. And that kind of uh, takes away some of his value as a wing. So the Hawks obviously resisted the potential of moving Collins for a wing before. I think overall, if the Hawks like were in love with Joe Harris, that'd be the way to do it. But I can't imagine that actually happening. The Nets liking Collins is not like a huge surprise. There are teams that like him around the league, as they should. But um, that does not mean that the stars kind of align here. So just to answer the question, I can't imagine a deal right now happening. But I, th- I think the uh, from what I've heard, the Nets do like John Collins. So uh, I agree with Mike Scotto on that little nugget. Um All right, next question might be the last one we'll see. Um, Comes from, I think it's Maharsy. My apologies if that's uh, pronounced incorrectly. Um, I saw a recent stat, the question says, and a question popped into my mind. Moharkless was one of the best non-big rim protectors last season with 4.7 contests per 75 possessions. With that kind of rim protection, he seems to be a great four to plug in next to a Kongwu on a bench rotation. What do you expect to see out there with the second unit? Who do you think they will have on the DeJounte-led units? I would love to hear your thoughts. So good question here, and I'm going to talk about Harkless for the most part. I'm going to save a lot of my rotation stuff for a little bit closer to the season. We have more stuff, but I'll sort of touch on it here a little bit. Harkless has some strengths. That's I'll start there. I know Hawks fans don't want to see Harkless, and I totally get why. He's a very boring player. I, I get that. They also have Jalen Johnson, who they obviously want to see. I want to see Jalen Johnson as well. So I want Jalen to be the, the backup power forward to open the season. No one's saying otherwise. I will say, though, Harkless does have some strengths. He's a genuinely positive defensive player. He's not, it's not a huge sample size in the question. But he's a really good help side guy on defense who can protect the rim a little bit, uh, for, especially for a combo forward. Um, he's also a veteran that can kind of know where to be. He can guard big wings. He can defend fours. He's not someone who's like super old either. I know there's like this um, thought about Arcos that he's age. He's actually 29 years old. He's not that old. Um, he's a pretty decent athlete still. Not um, Obviously more athletic than like someone like Salmon Hill was in Atlanta. Kind of that same role, same weaknesses, et cetera. The trouble again with Harkless is that he's a pretty bad shooter, especially for a non-center. A career 32% guy from three-point range, 28% in 73 games for the Kings over two seasons. Also, a very low-volume guy doesn't like to shoot from three. Uh, that guy was hurt the offense when he, he's not going to get guarded. So, to the question about pairing him with a Kong Wu, that would be pretty tough on offense in some ways. On a second unit that's not already have Trey on it, you'd be pay- you already be playing Murray, Harkless, and the Kong Wu. Maybe it would work if you played like bogey and holiday or bogey and Hunter for some shooting, but offensively, that's kind of uh, hampered if you're already putting them out there with some non-shooters, obviously a Kong Wu could become more of a shooter in the near future, but we don't know that just yet. Um, we'll see. So offensively, that's kind of some drawbacks there. Defensively, he'd be very helpful. If they want to like switch everything defensively, Harkless is very helpful in that context. Um, obviously sort of a plug-and-play guy. He's not gonna play a lot of three this year, I don't think, unless they have some injuries, but that's not the worst thing in the world if you have to have him out there just for some depth and a body on defense. Um, as for the rest of the question, again, we'll talk we'll talk about more of the rotation options a little bit later. But if you assume the stagger, and it it should happen, I don't know if it will, between Trey and DeJounte Murray that we're all hoping for, I think I think the sort of main backup unit of Murray, Bogdanovich, Holiday, either Jalen Johnson or Moe Harkless and the Kong Wu is probably what you're looking for in the second unit. I know that's not a full bench unit because you're talking about Murray being there as well. I personally believe, and I've said this a lot of times on the podcast before, you don't have to stagger. I mean, sorry, you don't have to play like these full bench units that Nate seems to like. Even four bench guys at a time is probably a little bit much for me, um, much less five, but he does do that often. So I'm kind of expecting him to do that. So if I had to guess what the prominent quote unquote second unit is going to be, I think it's going to be Murray, Bogdanovich, Holiday, one of the fours between Jalen and Harkless, and then Kongwu. Maybe you'll see some Griffin along the way. Maybe you'll, see, maybe you'll see some Frank Kaminsky at some point in time, but I think mean, that's kind of the prominent you know, top nine, if I had to guess right now. It's probably one of Johnson and Harkless plus uh, Bogdanovich, Holiday, and Okonwu as the backups that are prominently involved. Before we get out of here on the mail, on the podcast, uh, the one non-mail of that question is that I just want to say this at the end of the podcast. Lou Hudson, is going into the Hall of Fame this weekend in Springfield. Um, Lou Hudson is, of course, a former sort of Hawks legend. He retired in 1979, so I'm not going to act like I'm an expert on Lou Hudson. I was uh, not alive when he retired, but he is one of the best guys in franchise history for the Hawks, full stop. One of the only five guys in the history of the franchise that has their na- number retired, except for Marina, as of right now. He died in 2014, so he's a, uh, he's a posthumous selection from the Veterans Committee to the Hall of Fame, but a solid Hall of Fame resume for Lou Hudson. He was kind of like right on the borderline of actually getting in, but I think he's definitely deserving of getting in. Six-time All-Star, top 80 all-time in scoring, um, 60th all-time. In points per game, at more than 20 a game. He averaged 20.2 points per game for his entire career. That's very impressive. Again, top 60 all-time. 11 seasons with the Hawks in St. Louis and Atlanta. Um, number three, by the way, all-time. The franchise scoring behind only Bob Pettit and Dominique. I think Troy Young will probably pass him if he were to stick around long enough. But still, top three all-time. Averaged 22 points a game in 11 seasons with the Hawks. That's very impressive. Had a seven-year peak run with the Hawks where he averaged 25.1 points per game over seven seasons. You can't fake that. That's very, very good. Um, top five in the NBA in scoring three different times. Was number three in the league in field goal percentage one year, which is interesting for a six-five wing. That would not happen now, I don't think, very often. Um, Definitely kind of the ca- case that's like Hall of Fame worthy for sure, not like a definite lock, but he's going to get in, which is awesome. At all time, Hawks great. Clearly one of the five, seven, maybe top eight, best players in Hawks history alongside Neek and Pettit and Trey and a few others. So um, very cool thing there. If you are a longtime Hawks observer, I'm sure you have already seen this is happening. But if you want to dial into some Hawks content from the Hall of Fame this weekend, Lou Hudson going in this weekend in Springfield, that's a kind of a cool moment. All things considered for the franchise. So check out that if you want to. All right, that's going to be it for today's podcast. Please subscribe to the show. Again, we are four weeks as of course on Thursday from the start of the preseason and training camp is like two and a half weeks away. We're getting very close to things ramping up. Please subscribe to the show across platforms, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Stitcher, uh, do it across all of them and auto download. That's also very helpful for the podcast, YouTube subscriptions as well. And likes, please follow the show on Twitter at locked on Hawks. Follow me on Twitter at BT Roland and we'll see you all next time.